Good morning, church. Just waiting to see what happened there. We're on the edge of our seat. <clears throat> We're glad you guys are here today. Super excited about uh, Spencer and Ashley coming our way. It's just good to welcome them back to WFR uh, coming up in May. And uh, super excited about our future with our children's ministry, youth ministry here at WFR. It is our future. Amen. And so we always have to be aware uh, and also give everything we can to make sure that our young people are learning about Christ and learning about our WFR history and all the blessings that God has given us. How about a little applause this morning just for Jesus Christ being our Lord? Is that, can we do that? Can we start with that? <clears throat> Outstanding. Uh, our scripture reader this morning is Jacob Cook. It says here, where are you at, Jacob? Come on up. It says here, Jacob is 15. He just completed driver's ed, so look out, West Monroe, here he comes. And also, uh, he's involved at the Strauss Theater, so he's an actor on top of that. I like that. Yeah. Good. When you get famous, you're going to remember your preachers? Hopefully. Probably not. Yeah, appreciate that. First Corinthians 12:31 and 13:13. 13, 13. Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Excellent. Thank you, Jacob. How about a round of applause for Jacob? <laughs> Definitely got some future in voiceover work. Uh, great job, brother. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about why love uh, is the greatest and there's no doubt, you know, Mike dealt with uh, chapter 12 last week. I was in chapter 11 the week before that. Next week, of course, will be 14. And these are troubling passages for the church in Corinth. And, of course, they've been troubled passages going forward in time. Uh, because it's not easy to deal with things in church when they're not good and they're not right. And so it's no accident <clears throat> that right here in the middle of all these issues that the Corinthians church is sort of focused in on, that Paul is going to inject uh, one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, uh, the love chapter, we call it. Um, and in there, the words greater, you heard uh, Jacob read, most excellent and greatest are all present. So there's something very special about love. Now, I'm a child of the 70s. <clears throat> How many of you grew up during the 70s? Just so I'll know. Okay, a few of you. It's a miracle we're still here. Uh, when you think about the 70s, right, 70s was a very flamboyant decade for whatever reason. You know, it kind of started in the late 60s, but it just spilled over into the 70s. And look out, here we come, right? I would argue that the greatest rock music in history came from the 70s, right? Here I am throwing that word greatest, and some of you agree with me, I see. Uh, way better than what we currently hear. <clears throat> just a, my observation. Um, Muhammad Ali, which he was Cassius Clay in the 60s, controversial figure. But in 1964, before he fought for the heavyweight championship of the world, he declared to everyone that he was the what? The greatest. Now, that's pretty bold to do it before you do anything, right? But then he won. And then throughout the 70s, he won a lot. And he continued to declare that he was the greatest. Now, he was a lightning rod of controversy. A lot of people didn't like him. But as a kid growing up, 
when he consistently said, I am the greatest, then he stepped in that ring and won. I, I was a believer. I, I was a fan. Because someone that just states something like that and then follows it up, that builds a lot of confidence, right? A lot of us debate on the greatest of all time. Now, of course, we use the word goat. We want to shorten that down because we don't want to use too much vocabulary in the current culture. So we'll say someone is the goat. Now, in the old days, that meant bad, right? If you were the goat, then you blew it. But now the goat is the what? The greatest of all time. Which, when you think about that, is really, how do we define that in one era that we live in? Of all time? Of everybody that's ever lived, but everybody that ever will live? You know there's going to be somebody come along and out-goat your goat, right? It's going to happen. Records are made to be what? Broken. Because there's just a new goat. We'll even say, and I've said it many times before myself, that the United States of, Earth, the United States of America is the greatest country on earth. And I believe that, still. Although they did a poll recently of the happiest people in their own country, the happiest nations. You want to guess where America came in? 19th. Right behind the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic. I had to look that up. That wasn't even a country not too long ago, right? Number one was Finland. You know, I guess Scandinavia is the place to be, to be happy. The last was Afghanistan. We can all agree with that, right? But I thought about that. I mean, how many of us feel like we live in the greatest nation on earth, and yet when our people are asked, we rank so low? Why are people so unhappy? Well, we throw that word around a lot. But when we get to this text in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is going to use that word to describe what he says is the greatest. And we don't even have to qualify it much, but we're going to be very definitive when we finish this morning. And you're going to agree with me that it really is the greatest. No doubt about it. Now, we start out with what I call the love equation to, to, for me to prove my point to you that love is the greatest. Now, I took a lot of math, both in elementary school and high school and in college. And I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. Most of that has had no real application in my life at all. All the letters and the squares and the this and the that and the trapezoids and the whatever. I vaguely remember them. They've had very little impact. Only thing I really use on a regular basis, I learned in elementary school. You know, how to add a tip, add 10%, 20%, whatever. But I did find a way to apply it to this lesson. So thank you, math teachers, because we have what I call the love equation. What is that, Al? Well, let me read you the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. You'll see what it is. E minus L equals N. I'll give you a clue. E minus L equals N. You math nerds out there, you're thinking, whoa, what is he talking about? If I speak in the tongues or languages of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. When I read this, I, since we are talking about the 70s, I, I couldn't help but remember the gong show. How many of you remember the gong show? Well, there was some quality entertainment, wasn't it? Lasted two years. If I have the gift of prophecy 
and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. That's pretty amazing. If I have a faith that can move a mountain, that's even more amazing. But do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, or some versions say to the flames, that I may boast. He's talking about martyrdom. Give my life. But do not have love, I gain nothing. I think about that verse. I think about 9-11. Those 19 hijackers that screamed out Allah Akbar as they crashed into buildings and killed 3,000 people. That they did it in the name of hate. Therefore, their actions gained what? Nothing. What a loss for everyone. Okay, E minus L equals N. Have you figured it out yet? Everything... Minus love equals nothing. That's the equation that Paul brings out in this text. Now, he has a lot of everything. Speaking in earthly and heavenly languages, that's pretty awesome. Understanding and communicating mysteries and knowledge, who doesn't love to do that? Having a faith so deep that it has the results that would move a mountain? Having a trust that would literally give everything. Your life, your possessions, your comfort. And yet all of that without love is nothing. It's loud, it's annoying, and it's caused divisions among the Corinthian church. We've been talking about these very issues, about tongues and about gifts. All that without love brings nothing. So why is that? Why is the love equation true? Well, to prove my equation, because after all, I told you I'm such a math whiz, I have created what I call, or Paul has here in the text, the love timeline. If we really want to understand this equation and why that love, when taken out of everything equals nothing, we have to understand the timeline of love. And you pick that up in verse 8. Let's skip down to verse 8. He says this. But where there are prophecies, which he had just mentioned to get to prophecy, they will cease. Where there are tongues, languages, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Man, all those great things, temporary. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness or perfection in some versions comes, what is in part disappears. And now he's going to illustrate what he means by that. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Think about that. You may be like me and don't remember a lot of your childhood because there have been a lot of years between you and there. But if you raise children, and now you're a part of your grandchildren's life, you get to watch it happen all over again. Do you remember that childlike wonder when you didn't know much, so you just made stuff up, right? I mean, you didn't know how bad the world was, and your parents shielded so much of it from you, and they tried to keep you away from those things that would damage you. And so you just made up your own things, your own facts, your own world. 
You might have imaginary friends. You may have superhero powers. I watch my grandkids now when they're play acting with one another. They've just created their whole little world. And I just watch it and marvel, trying to remember what it was like to remember you didn't know anything or you knew very little. And then one day, unannounced, unique to you, you just knew more. I mean, nobody told you, nobody gave you a script. It's just you had an awareness that there was a reality in the world and all of a sudden my mate believed things weren't true. And you had to face that. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but when, when that happened, there was no going back. Adults that try to make up their own fantasy, it never works out for them. The harsh realities of the world. One time it was in part, you didn't know everything, and then at some point you did. That's how he illustrates it. Look at verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see when this completeness or perfection is come. We shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So what's he talking about with this perfection or completion? Some people say it's the second coming when he actually comes back. Then we'll know. It could be true. That could be what he means. Or it could be that second birth and that maturity that comes with it when you know some things on this side before he gets back that you didn't know before. Either or. I'm, I'm good with both. Ultimately, it doesn't matter in my little equation here. It doesn't matter whether it's future or whether it's now. Because to understand the love timeline you have to understand that everything on earth is temporary without the love of God, which makes it different. So why is that? If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 11. Because there's a couple other passages where a couple other writers really help Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians 13. I want to read them to you this morning. 1 John 4, 11. Because think about these two contexts together. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So God first, then us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made, uh uh-oh, there's our word, complete in us. There's that idea of completion, perfection, same word in the Greek. This is how we know that we live in him, verse 13, and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. See, there's something different. And we have seen and testified that the father, so now we've had the spirit and the father, and has sent his son, there's the son, to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So you're starting to see how this works. We commit to God. He says, you are now in me. In fact, because of that, I'm going to send part of me that's going to live in you. Perfect harmony. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Huge statement. God is love. Right? And so therefore, if God is love, he's also alone immortal. So love is also immortal. It crosses over all time. 
Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Verse 17. This is how love, here's our word again, is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. This is why I feel like it's on this side of the second coming. Because we want to be there knowing that, you know what? God lives in me. And it happened because of his love for us. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love, there's that word again, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. You know why I'm looking forward to the day of judgment? Why I'm looking forward to the Lord coming back in the great resurrection? Because I've been made complete in him. I look forward to it. When there's a big, loud racket, I'm like, is this it? I'm excited about it. You realize how many people on that day will be fearful? Because they don't understand what we're talking about. The Hebrew writer put it this way in Hebrews 12 too. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, and here's the word again, the perfecter of our faith. Jesus does that. And then I want to read you this one. Hebrews 10 verse 14. If somebody's asleep next to you, wake them up because they want to hear this. This is powerful. This is the love equation and love timeline verse in the Bible. You ready? It's big. It's bold. For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect, past tense, forever, future tense, those who are being made holy, present tense. There's the timeline. Jesus' sacrifice made us holy, what he did for us. But it's forever. And it's still happening in real time because as the Holy Spirit lives out love and truth in us, other people see the love and fruit of God. That's the timeline. And that's why love is truly the greatest. I think it was the great theologian, Keanu Reeves, who said to that, Whoa. Whoa. It's true. So I've got a new equation for you. E plus L times G, God's love, equals CP, complete perfection. Now we'll acknowledge we're not perfect. That's true of our own accord. But I'm telling you because of the love of God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are perfect in the eyes of the Almighty. He sees perfection. He sees a relationship of us in him and him in us. Even while we're on this earth. Now, we're going to have some great things beyond the pale in heaven. But we got a lot to be thankful for in the here and now. Amen. What a blessing that we get to live this out. That's why Jesus said so simply, you want to wonder what you need to do? Let me just make it real simple for you. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbors yourself. That way we got the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. We got everybody around us and even ourselves included in the equation. 
You see, the evil one does a lot of damage to people because they don't love themselves. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought we weren't supposed to love ourselves. How can you love your neighbors yourself if you don't love yourself? God doesn't make junk. You are a created masterpiece of the Almighty. So when the evil one comes by and says, oh, no, you're too shameful. You've done too much. You've got this. You've got that. You've got this struggle. You say, nope. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself because in the eyes of God, I am complete in his love. Therefore, I don't hold back. I'm not living in shame because Jesus takes the shame. We say, well, man, Al, that's, man, what a sermon. We got the first part. We got the last part. What about the middle? Well, you know, it's just like a sandwich. The best part is where? In the middle. And we had not even gotten to that yet. The diet I'm currently on, all I can eat is the middle. So, not only do we have the love equation that's been solved by the love timeline, but now we have what I call the love lifestyle. What would it look like if we got those concepts that I was mentioning earlier and that Paul mentions in this text? Here's what it looked like. He breaks it down in four categories. First, he says what love is. This is verses 4 through 8. Lo- what love is. And he only says two things. Boy, you don't, you don't keep it simple. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love is kind. But isn't there a lot more stuff in the Bible? Oh, there's a lot of attributes. But Paul says, I'm just going to give you two. Love is patient. Love is kind. I want you to do something with me. Everybody close your eyes. Few of you have already been ahead in this exercise. I see you. <laughs> just remember the devil does some of his best work in dreams. So just keep that in mind. All right. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to picture a person that you know personally that is patient and kind. Just think about it a minute. We got all morning. Patient and kind. If you can't think of anybody, you need new friends, by the way. All right, you got a person? All right, you can open your eyes. Now, when you think about that person, I will bet you one of my vests. That that person is loved by almost everyone. If you had that person in your mind that's truly patient and kind and shows that patience and kindness, I will bet you a bet. That that person is loved by most. I'll tell you who I thought of when I was preparing this. And she's not here, so I'm not embarrassing her. It was my son-in-law's mom, Beverly Stone. My grandkids, because we share grandkids, they call her B.B. B.B. is patient and kind. And you know what? Everybody loves her. That's the point. You know, we can work on a lot of stuff in our life, but if people see this fruit in love, they're going to love you. It says a lot. Now, I know what you're thinking, because there's probably one or two in here that says, you know, I'm not very patient. Somebody else says, I'm not really kind. I'll let you fill in the blank. So what love is, what love isn't, is the second category. He's going to give us four. It is not... Proud arrogance. It's not that. It is not rude, which would be uncaring and unkind, right? 
if it's rude. It is not self-seeking, which would mean selfish or impatient. Just the opposite of what we've already seen love is. It is not easily angered. What we would say is ill-tempered, quick-tempered. It's not that. Now, I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes on that one. And I sure hope it's not you. I've known a few people that had all four of these qualities, and I can tell you this. No one loves them. In fact, they don't even love themselves. That's what happens when you remove love. Remember the equation? You get nothing. Folks, you don't want to live if these are the qualities coming forth from your life. You know why? Because it makes you more fearful. Remember what he said about fear? You block the Holy Spirit. These aren't fruits that come from him. So if these are emergent in your life, and especially in your family and with your children, they are showing the absence of love. And it kills your example and your influence. Maybe some of us have some repenting we need to do. And that just means change. Because you can change these qualities. You can. I've seen a lot of you do it. Third category, what love doesn't do. It does not envy. Which means when you're envious, you can't appreciate other people. That leads to bitterness. It leads to being a person who covets. It leads to a person who can't find contentment themselves because they're only worried about what somebody else has, whether it's a gift or a possession. You don't want to be that way. That's ugly. And look, it damages you. It leads to gossip and slander. You'll run somebody down the heartbeat. Why? Just because they have something you don't. Don't be like that. Facebook is a cesspool of envy. You don't want to do that. It does not boast. And when people boast, typically they're insecure and they can't see past themselves. That's what that means. It does not delight in evil. When you get to the point where you can delight in evil, then you won't change. The Bible says your conscience becomes seared when you can delight in evil. When we see evil in the world, it should always hurt first before we decide what to do about it. And we see that happen every day, right? Don't delight in evil. So his last category, which of course is my favorite, is what love does. And he gives us six of those. It rejoices with the truth, which means I'm able to correct. Because if I rejoice in truth, instead of delighting in evil, therefore I'm going to be able to change mid-course. Because truth is the auto-correct. But only if I rejoice in it. So when I hear a sermon, I can say, wow, that old guy. Or I can say, you know, the word of God was spoken clearly and I need to listen and rejoice in truth. That's how I'm shaped and changed. It always protects. I love that. You know what that means? That means love can be extended. Because if love protects, that means it helps other people around you. I always think of Job when I read this text. You know, it said he offered sacrifices for his children just in case they messed up. He wanted to extend his love to protect them. 
You say, yeah, but that didn't end well. Didn't they all die in a terrible accident? Yeah, that's the point. You want to pray over your children because you're concerned for their soul. Because we're not going to be on this earth forever. Therefore, I want to love them in a way that protects their soul first. And then the rest. It always trusts. And if it always trusts, that means it's able to forgive in faith. Because trust is hard when it's been violated. Amen? The only way you're going to be able to always trust is if you can trust in the Almighty that he has the power to forgive. Therefore, you do as well. That's a tough one. It always hopes, which means it can always rise. It always perseveres, which means it's able to finish. Lone Wadi said, endeavor to persevere. That's what love does. And it never fails. Verse 8. Never. Is love enough? Is it the greatest? Yes. It is. I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the last verse. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is what I call the big three. Everything else fails. Your world falls apart. You don't know one day from the next there's crisis. You're going to have three things that will remain. First of all, your faith. That God really do did do what he said that he did. He did that for you. He's still doing it for you, and he will do it for you. We have faith that all of it's true. There really is a Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in heaven mediating for us. Truth. That's our faith. What about hope? Man, I'm hoping in that resurrection, aren't you? I mean that this life won't be the end. That we will be raised to be imperishable, to live forever in the presence of God. That's the power of hope. And then there's love. Why is it the greatest of the big three? Well, one, it's the only one that crosses over to eternity. See, when Jesus comes back, that is our hope. And our faith is answered. Because everything we believe is true. We don't take faith and hope over to the other side. But guess what we do take? Love. You know why? Because God is love. Wow, what an eternity we're going to spend without all the enemies of love, without hate. And you see, it's also the only one that functions outside of ourselves. That's another reason why it's the greatest. I mean, we do share our faith. We do try to give others hope. But those things are still internal to us. It's my faith and my hope. But love... That belongs to us all. We extend that. People see that. People are impacted by that. Love one another as you love yourself. And it's the only one that fully injects us into God's circle for all eternity. You see, when we love with God's love, we are in God's love. That's how we're going to survive. Not only this life but thrive in eternity with him. That's why love is the greatest. I told you he was going to prove it right here in this text. 1,200 songs have been written in the last 100 years with love in the title by people who have no idea what real love is. 
But today you know. You know the love of Christ. Unless you don't. And today's the day you need to embrace that and make that first change. You will never understand eternity unless you can understand the love of God. You'll never understand the love of God unless you can embrace Jesus Christ. You'll never understand who Jesus Christ is unless his Holy Spirit is allowed to come and indwell you. And that's what happens when you become a son or a daughter of the Almighty God. Today is that opportunity, if you've never done that, to believe with all your heart and have faith in that message, to hope in the resurrection that Jesus really did raise and he's coming back. To change your life and commit yourself to him by confessing him as Lord and to be immersed and reenact that second birth to understand what it means to be complete. That's the equation for eternal life. If you've never done that, today is your day. If you have a need or if you stumbled along the way and just haven't shown love, we want to help you find the path. And we want to do that while we stand and while we sing.